Take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Over the next few months, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll preach on several topics, but I want to come back to this topic of faith. And whenever I think of faith, I think of Hebrews chapter 11. Some people call it the um, Hall of Faith. And so we'll look at some of the folks that are mentioned here in this chapter. And also, by looking at these folks that are mentioned, it'll take us through Genesis and Exodus and all the way into Joshua and the book of Judges. And so, if you are unfamiliar with the first couple of books of the Old Testament, Genesis and Exodus, Joshua, Judges, then you'll get a, a little overview of the, of the history that's there. Faith has always been important to the Christian life because the Bible tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. That's in Hebrews 11 and verse 6. That without faith it is impossible to please God. But as uh, people living in 21st century America, I think it's hard for us to imagine what faith is. We, we have so many things that we see that are amazing to us, technology that does things that the previous generations could have only dreamed of. And so I think sometimes we, we begin to rely on technology. We begin to rely on our prosperity. We begin to rely on our own wits and our own work in order to accomplish what we think is important in life. And it takes faith. It takes faith to please God. So I want to deal with a couple of questions in these, not just today, but in the sermons on faith. One of the questions that I want to deal with is, what is our faith in? That's what we're going to look at today. What is our faith in? Because faith always has an object. I want to look at the question of how does faith work? Uh, I want to consider the question, how do we exercise faith? Now, that has two aspects. First of all, how do we know we're, we're, we're acting in faith, we're behaving in faith, we're living in faith? That's one way we exercise faith. But how do we grow our faith? We use the same idea. And how do we exercise our muscles? Well, we lift weights. Uh, maybe we run. Uh, maybe you swim. You do some sort of um, workout to make, to tone and to build your muscles. And our faith requires exercise to tone and to build our faith. So those are some of the topics that we're going to look at as we consider faith. And today we're going to start right here in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 11, in verses 1, 2, and 3. Let me read those three verses to you. Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, that is, for by faith, the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That's where we're going to focus on this beginning of, in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. And let me read verse 3 to you again. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Father, we come to your word this morning and I need faith. I need my faith increased. I need my faith strengthened. I need to tone my faith. I need to understand better how to apply faith to the decisions of life that I make and the choices that I make and the habits that I develop. And there, are, I know my Christian sisters and my Christian brothers also need faith. We need our faith increased. Again, we need to know how to apply it where we're at in the season of life that you've put us. These young Christians 
need to develop a, a strong faith that will enable them to make wise choices from a young age, to dedicate their lives to serving you, to uh, walk with you as Enoch walked with you, to know what it is to walk in the Spirit, to walk by faith and not by sight, to reject what is so easy to follow and instead choose that straight, that narrow path that you've set before us. So we ask, Father, for that uh, faith that we need. We ask for an understanding of this passage and its meaning to our lives. And Lord, that you'd open our, our, our hearts to truth, that you give us soft hearts, not hard hearts, not hearts of stone that you have to hammer away on to chip a few pieces off, but give us soft hearts that are quick to receive your instruction and your exhortation and your rebuke as may, as may be. And Father, I'm asking for your Holy Spirit to guide what I say so that the message from your word is transferred to the hearts and minds and the heart of these fellow Christians without me getting in the way, without me distorting it. So we ask for these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We um, live in interesting times. There's an apocryphal story that says that an old Chinese curse is, may you live in interesting times. That is not a Chinese proverb. It doesn't appear in Chinese anywhere. But it makes for an interesting uh, way to greet someone. You know, may you live in interesting times. I don't know about you. I don't really want to live in interesting times. I want life to be uninteresting, to be peaceful, to be tranquil. It's like when you're driving to a new place. This happened to me just this week. You're driving to a new place. You don't really know where you're going. And you are trying to follow your GPS, but your GPS says turn down something that doesn't look like a street. And you say, do I, really, do I really need to go down there? And so you say, well, I'll just follow my GPS. And you turn down there and then you realize this isn't where you're supposed to be. That, those are interesting times. I don't want interesting times. I want things to be real clear, real easy, peaceful, prosperous. I want to be protected. But let's face it, we live in, in very interesting times. We have a a, a land war in Europe, the first land war in Europe we've had since World War II. We have uh, turmoil in the Middle East, kicked off by terrorists killing defenseless civilians. And uh, who knows where this will lead? I, I don't know where this will lead. We have a House of Representatives that's been without a Speaker of the House now for some weeks, at a time when it seems very critical to have some leadership. And so, indeed, we live in interesting times. Some of you remember, I, I, I thought I'd never see the day when I'd go into a supermarket and the shell, in the United States and the shelves would be empty. But a couple of years ago, we'd walk into a grocery store looking for flour, looking for toilet paper, and there wasn't any. That, those are interesting times. You young people, don't, don't, uh, don't despair. The nice thing about interesting times is there's a lot of excitement, maybe too much excitement. But we live in interesting times. I'd like to see, I would like us, those of us that are Elmira Baptist Church, I'd like us to see ourselves as soldiers in a battle. In a battle for our lives and for each other's lives. And the Bible does describe the Christian life as, as a battle. God calls us to be soldiers. I'd like us to see ourselves, to use another metaphor, I'd like us to see ourselves as mother hens. Mother hens that are protecting their chicks even at the expense of their own lives. 
I'd like to see us to see ourselves as pioneers. Pioneers in an inhospitable land. And there isn't a lot of infrastructure. There isn't a store you just go to and buy stuff. But because God's called us here, we are grateful to, to stay here. The final metaphor I, I was thinking of, imagine yourself as a smoke jumper. Uh, if you know what these guys are, these are parachutists, people who jump out of planes, which, number one, I don't like jumping out of planes. And these fellas, they jump out of planes into areas, into hot spots, into areas where there's a forest fire, where there's a wildfire, in an effort to put the fire out. So on two accounts, these people must be crazy. Number one, they're jumping out of planes. And number two, they're jumping into fires. And I want us to understand to some degree in our spiritual, in a, in our spiritual world that we live in, in this, in this nation, the United States, it's a great country. God's blessed us in so many ways. We are like these smoke jumpers and we've parachuted into dry grass and there's a fire all around us. We can smell the smoke. We can feel the flames. We can see the ash falling down on us. And it would be easy to be scared and say, I don't want to be here. But let me read to you what Isaiah 43, 2 says. Isaiah 43, 2 says, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. I wonder if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three brave young men who said to Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to bow down to your idol. You, you do what you need to do, but we're not going to bow down to your idol. And there's a furnace burning seven times hotter than it's ever burned before. I wonder if this verse came to their minds as they were being tied up to be thrown into that fiery furnace. And we know the end of that story. The ropes burned off. The men who threw them into the fire were killed just by being that close to the flame. But those three young men came out and they did not even smell of smoke, the Bible tells us. But if we're going to be like those three uh, men, if we're going to be like those smoke jumpers who crazy jump out of planes into a fire, it's going to require faith. It's going to require faith. It's going to require a faith that is grounded in God's goodness because God indeed is good. It's going to take a faith that is firm in our Savior's strength because our strength is not enough. And it's going to take faith that's anchored in a God that is bigger than us, that's anchored in a God who's bigger than our problems, who's anchored in a God that's bigger than our circumstances, anchored in a problem bigger than these wars that are breaking out. We need that type of faith. Now, oftentimes people think of faith as just faith, and they forget that faith always has an object. Think of it this way. Think of faith as an anchor. When I was growing up, my dad loved to fish, and I loved to be with my dad, so I'd go fishing with my dad. Now, if you ask me to go fishing by myself, I have no desire to go fishing by myself. I don't, fishing just doesn't interest me. But if I go with my dad, I love to go fishing with my dad. My dad had this little boat, and this little boat leaked for one thing. So we had a little pail in there and we'd bail water every once in a while. And we told our mom about this and she was recently recounting and she never believed us. You know, kids make up stories. You know, why would they be bailing water out of the boat? Surely the boat doesn't leak. And then one day my dad, after us kids had grown up and we'd moved out of the house, my dad asked my mom to go fishing with him. So she went fishing with him. And she said, uh, yeah, 
honey, I think there's water in the boat. He says, yeah, here's the pail. Start bailing. <laughs> so he had this boat, little boat, little aluminum boat. Uh, I don't remember if it was welded or riveted, but whatever it was, it, it leaked. And it had no anchor. So my dad cast an anchor. I don't remember exactly how, but he melted down lead and he poured it into this, into this uh, uh, coffee tin and uh, attached a, a, a hook to it, or not a hook, an eye to it, and we put a rope through that eye, and that was our anchor. But sometimes it wasn't a very long rope. Sometimes we'd go out into the middle of the lake, and we'd want to fish there, and my dad would put the anchor down, and it wouldn't touch bottom. The rope wasn't long enough for the anchor to even touch bottom. And guess what? That anchor just sitting out of the boat, not resting on anything, not stuck to anything, that anchor did us no good. Because as heavy as that anchor was, and it was heavy, it, wa it wasn't attached to anything. It didn't have any firm foundation on which to catch, so it just laid in the water and the boat still got blown all over the lake. An anchor is no good unless it's anchored on something. And our faith is no good unless it's, our faith is in God himself. It's not faith in me. It's not faith in you. And, and by the way, I don't want you to have faith in me either. Some of you are familiar with Jim Jones. How many of you remember when Jim Jones was in Redwood Valley? Okay, yeah. I had a friend. He's my, I, not my friend, my dad's friend. He said, I attended his, his Redwood Valley group one time. And I said, oh, really? How did you survive? He said, yeah, there were people with guns. Anyway, that's another story. Let me not get it. But here's a man who says, hey, trust me. I'll tell you what we should do. I'm not asking you to trust me. I'm asking you to trust God. Our faith needs to be anchored in God. So this this. Uh, anchor that we're going to cast out of our boat just doesn't drift. It's not just pulling through the sand. It's on a firm and a solid rock, and that rock is Jesus Christ. That rock is God himself. There's four axioms that I want to give you today, four things that we need to have faith about. Um, Caleb, these slides are not advancing again. Can you see it? There you go. Thank you. Four axioms that I want to give you today um, that we must believe if our anchor is going to be stuck on that rock. And we want that anchor stuck on that rock because we don't want our ship blown all over the place. Here's the first axiom, and this is in Hebrews uh, uh, 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is. The first axiom, the first thing we must have faith in is that God exists. We must believe that he is. That God exists. That's where faith starts. You notice in, in Genesis 1-1, and we will not go to Genesis today, but you, if you haven't read Genesis 1-1 in a while, let me encourage you to read it again. Genesis 1-1 says this, In the beginning, God. Doesn't give any explanation for where he came from. Or what he'd been doing before that beginning. It just starts with God and his existence. If you do not believe God exists, you are by definition an atheist or maybe an agnostic. But you are going to have an anchor that's just drifting out there in the water somewhere. Yeah, it's not in the boat anymore. It's out in the water. But it's not stuck to anything. And your boat is no safer than if you had no anchor at all. In fact, it's probably less safe because the anchor's weighing down the boat. So we must believe that God exists. But there's a second belief that we need to hold on tightly to. And that's also found in Hebrews 11:6. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is. 
and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The second truth, the second axiom that we're going to hold on to is that God rewards those who seek him. Can you advance that slide? I'm, I don't know why we're having trouble, but we're having trouble. God rewards those that seek him. In other words, God cares whether you are looking for him or not. Now, I believe that God is not hard to find, and I won't develop that idea in this sermon, but God is not hard to find. The problem is we don't really want to find him. Not as he is. We want to make God into our own image. We want to make God like us. We want to give him problems and failures and want to make him small so that he's controllable. That, that type of God we want. But we don't want to meet God as he really is. And that's why we have trouble finding him. Think about Jesus. He's standing before Pilate. The Jews have accused, have accused Jesus of being king of the Jews. And so Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Don't you think that should have intrigued Pilate enough to say, well, where's your kingdom from? <laughs> what kind of kingdom do you rule? But instead, when Jesus says to Pilate, everyone that hears the truth, Pilate comes back with the comment, what is truth? Pilate's already decided that it doesn't matter what Jesus says, that there is no true or false, there is no right or wrong, and he's not, yes, he washes his hands, but he's not morally culpable for what happens here. That's a decision that Pilate made long before he met Jesus. And here's my point. Pilate overlooked the fact that the very God who created him was standing in front of him because he wasn't looking for him. God rewards those who seek him. So are you spending time daily, weekly? How much time have you spent this last week seeking God in his word? How much time have you spent this last week seeking God in prayer? Because frankly, often the reason we aren't finding God is we're not looking for him. We don't really want to find him. It's like the kid who doesn't want to go to church so he can't find his church shoes. I can't find them, Mom. I guess I'll just have to stay home. They're right here. Oh, no, those aren't mine. Yeah, yeah they are. No, I wear the others. No, no, put, it, put your feet in there. Well, just because my shoes fit, feet fit these shoes doesn't mean these are my shoes. That's what the kid says, you know. The problem is not the, the shoes. It's not the church. It's that the kid has already decided what he doesn't want to do. And when we don't want to see God, he's very hard to find. But God is a rewarder of those that seek him. And the path to God is clear. Scripture says that Jesus said to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So the only path to Jesus Christ, to God the Father, excuse me, is through Jesus Christ. But are you seeking him? Because God rewards those that seek him. But here's a third axiom. And this one is in Hebrews 11 and verse 3. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The third axiom is that God created all that exists by his powerful word. God didn't create by working hard, by using his hands. Of course, God is a spirit. I understand that. But God didn't have to exert a lot of effort to create, did he? God said, and it was. Now, that to me is amazing. God said, and it was. That's what it says, that he created the worlds 
that the the worlds were framed by the word of God. The word of God framed the worlds. Let me me just give you a little uh, uh, mind thought experiment to just help you think through this. I remember watching this building go up. We started with a pile of lumber, right? The foundation had already been laid. Let's... Had been done. Started with a pile of lumber, and we had a couple guys come out every day, and they had a couple of power tools, and stick by stick, they framed that building. But let's imagine if we started out with just ground, and someone went out there and said, let there be a foundation. And suddenly there's 50 tons of concrete, flat. That would amaze you. That would amaze me. Guy says, let the building be framed, and all of a sudden there is all the framing that's needed. We call out the inspector. The inspector says, boy, I've never seen work done this well. Who did this work? Well, we didn't really do it. We just spoke it. God spoke the world into existence. That is incredible. Far greater than talking a building into existence or talking a car into, the ex- into existence. Here God is speaking and there's light. God's speaking and there's a sun. God's speaking and there's moons. Oh, and he made the stars also, the Bible says. We believe that God created all things by his almighty power. Now, if I believe that, if that's the, one of the axioms of my faith, that's where my anchor is it just stuck on that rock, that God created all things by the world of his power. Why would any circumstance in this life trouble me? Because God's almighty power is greater than whatever problem I'm facing. So it's important that we understand not just that God exists and that he rewards those that seek him, but he created all things, everything, just merely by speaking it. And here's the fourth axiom that God has created, excuse me, God has communicated to man. And I didn't put it on the slide, but it's imperative that you understand God has communicated to man through the Bible. Now, there are a lot of books that claim to be holy books that claim to be given to us by the gods or given to us by a holy man, uh, a man with great wisdom or insight. But the Bible is the word of God. And all these other books, they may have good ideas. They may be useful for some things, but they are not the word of God. This is how God has communicated with man. Now, this is implied in the fact that God rewards those who seek him. Because if God's going to reward those who seek him, he's got to give us a way to seek him, right? I mean, imagine if somebody walked up to you and said, I have a reward for you. I have $1,000. Great. How do I get it? I'm not going to tell you. Where is it? You got to figure that out for yourself. Who, who's giving me this $1,000? Can't tell you that either. You just walk away assuming the guy was crazy. If God says, I'll reward you if you diligently seek me, but I'm hiding and I'm not telling you anything, how will we seek him? So it's implied that God has communicated to us uh, in some way. But I want you to look specifically at Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. Yep, that's on there. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. This verse tells us, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Now, this verse tells us right up front that there are things you are never going to understand. Things that you'll never know. 
things that I'll never know because they're secret things. And I, I, I have a lot of times, people come to me often and will say, Pastor, I don't understand why God did this. And I'll say with them, I, I don't understand either. I, I don't. I can make some guesses. I mean, I, I've seen some patterns in other people's lives, but I don't know why God does things. Here's the problem that Job's three friends had. They knew why God had done this to Job, didn't they? Except they were diametrically wrong. They weren't just a little bit off. They were completely off. Sometimes we're so quick to say, oh, I know what God's doing here. and We don't. There's secret things. We don't know. People say, why, does, why is God like this? I, I don't know. Because it's a secret thing. It, the word, God's word does not reveal it to me, so I don't know. So let's set those secret things aside. The questions that I'll never have answered this side of eternity. The questions you have about God. The things about His at works in your life and what He's done and allowed in your life that we don't understand. Let's set those aside. By the way, going back to Job, when we get to the end of the book of Job... Has God taken time to explain to Job what was going on? And the answer is no. He hasn't. God asked Job a series of questions, dozens and dozens of questions. Job says, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then God blesses him. Here's my point. You may never know why God's done something in your life. Why God's allowed something that was painful. I, I don't know all those answers. The secret things belong to God. But he's revealed stuff to us in his word. And this is what belongs to us and to our children. God's communicated to us. So here are the four things again. There is a God. He rewards those who seek him. He's created everything just merely by speaking it, to, speaking it into existence. And he has communicated to man. Now, if I can, just for the sake of interest and to help you think through these things, let's imagine I don't believe those things. Let's imagine that I don't believe that God's communicated to man. I don't believe that God created everything. And I don't believe that he rewards those who seek him because I don't even believe God exists. Let's, let's start with, just take those axioms, we'll add them up into a ball and throw them in the garbage. Now, how does one go about living his life if that's what I don't believe? I played a game one time, twice. I played it in my life twice. The game is called Diplomacy. It's a board game called Diplomacy. Anyone here play Diplomacy? Okay. Let me tell you a little about Diplomacy. The, diploma, the game, two games of Diplomacy I took took about eight hours to play. The first, well, the first one took about six hours to play. And at the end of six hours... We did not have a clear winner. And so the group of us, there's seven of us, we said, listen, it's going to take a little bit longer than six hours to come up with a clear winner. We're going to modify the rules. We're going to streamline this game so we can accomplish more in a short amount of time. And we're going to devote the whole day to it. We're going to start at, I don't remember, seven o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, and we're going to play all day. Well, we did. We played all day. And at the end of the second game, there was still no clear winner. So I got online, this was back in the early 2000s, so you know, you had the internet, I got online to find out. This game was designed in 1959, so it's been around a long time. I got online to find out how long does an average game of diplomacy take? And I come to find out that there are multiple scenarios in which there is no winner. 
there can be a stalemate. And if you want to know the details, you go online, look up diplomacy stalemate, diplomacy board game stalemate, and you'll, there's multiple scenarios where nobody wins. And I thought, I'm going to devote 8 or 10 or 12 hours to a game, and at the end, maybe nobody wins? I'm not playing this game anymore, and I've never played since. Now, I love board games, but if you, want to, if you offer me a game of diplomacy, no thank you. And I'm encouraging you, if someone offers you a game of diplomacy, no thank you. Because it's a game in which there may never be a winner, even though you spend hours and hours at, at it. Now, that's just a board game. That's just a board game. Let's think about life. What if life has no purpose? What if you can spend decades living and trying to be a nice guy, and in the end, you, you don't believe God's communicated to man? You don't believe that God has created all things? You don't believe that God rewards those who seek Him? You don't even believe God exists? What is your purpose in life? What, what is it that you're living for? You say, well, I know what I want to live for. I want to accumulate wealth. I'm just going to get lots and lots of money. Okay, and at the end of your life, when you die, what happens to all that money? It sure doesn't help you. My dad had a saying that he had never seen a U-Haul trailer being pulled by a hearse. And he's right. I've watched many funerals. Seen hearses, I've seen horse-drawn hearses, I've seen cars, I've seen a lot of hearses, but never seen a U-Haul trailer behind the hearse. You say, well, I'm going to become famous. I'm going to become so famous that everybody in the world knows about, well, I think that would be too big of a, I'm going to become so famous that everybody in California knows about me. Well, that may be true for a moment, maybe even a few years or a decade or two, but trust me, people will forget you. And there'll come a time when your name is mentioned and people say, who's that? Fame is fleeting. You say, well, I'm just going to run after all the things that make me happy. I'm just going to, this is what we say in America, I'm just going to follow my heart. Trust me, that is a terrible idea. Amen. Terrible idea. You're going to end up in a world of pain and hurt. I've met people who, after decades of living selfishly, and doing everything that pleased them, they've burned so many bridges. They've had so many pains. So what is life's purpose? Well, again, our Bible tells us that our life's purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Amen. And the neat thing is that because God is incomprehensible, because he's so much bigger than anything we can imagine, we can spend all of eternity enjoying him and glorifying him and never run out to the end of who he is. Now, if you sat down with me, you might take a couple hours, maybe a couple days, I don't know, and you'd know just about everything there is to know about me. You could predict what I was going to do and what, the way I think. And it's just a matter of time before you run out of things to know about me. But with God, we're never going to run out of knowing about him because he's infinite so let me encourage you today to consider what is the point of life if there is no God if he doesn't reward those who seek him if he's not created the world and he's not communicated with us what is the point of life 
what is it that you're hoping to accomplish? Because if you have, if that's your understanding of life, there's no God, he doesn't reward, he doesn't create, he doesn't communicate, then you're like that boat out in the middle of the ocean and your sail's broken and the motor's busted and you have no anchor. And the wind and the currents are just going to carry you wherever they want to carry you. But as I mentioned before, we have an anchor. And our anchor is in God. That He exists, that He rewards those who seek Him, that He's created all things by His powerful Word, and that He has communicated with man. So what can we learn... Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3 says that God framed the worlds by his word. What can we learn about God simply through his creation? Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. What is it that we can understand about God from his creation? And again, if you've not read Genesis 1 recently, let me encourage you to go back and just read through it this afternoon or this evening, maybe tomorrow. Read through it and ask yourself, what attributes of God do you see just in his creation? And let me suggest a few. Just as we're meditating on the greatness of God, this God that exists, that he rewards those who seek him, who creates and who communicates, what kind of God are we? is our faith in? Well, number one, it's a God who is completely independent of his creation. Again, in the beginning, God. He already existed when the beginning began. He was already there. He didn't appear or begin his existence at creation. He's completely, if you took all of creation away, if, if all the universe just was wiped away and there was nothing left, God would still exist because he's independent of his creation. Now, you and I are dependent on his creation for the air we breathe, for the water we drink, for the food we eat, for the friendships, the relationships we have with other people. All of this, we're dependent on creation, but God is completely independent of his creation. Your faith should be in a God who's completely independent of his creation. So when, there's, when war breaks out, does God get worried? No, because that doesn't affect him. It doesn't change him. It affects him, excuse me, because he's a God who has emotion, but it doesn't change who he is. When a pandemic breaks out and laws are put into place and pretty soon there's no flour on the shelves in your supermarket, does God suddenly get worried about what he's going to eat? No, because he's independent of creation. If the air becomes toxic and there's, there's acid rain, does, does that bother God's existence? Well, it bothers God because I, I know he doesn't want us to destroy his creation, but it doesn't, doesn't hurt him. He doesn't breathe air like you and I do. He's independent of his creation. And when we, have, when we understand how independent God is of his creation, that's exciting. Because there are things that bother me. There are circumstances in life that I say, I don't know what I'm going to do. There are times my family comes to me and says, hey, dad, uh, this is a problem. And I say, yeah, it is a problem. And I don't know how to solve it. But that never happens to God. 
The second thing we see just by the fact that he created all things is that God is immensely powerful. Power beyond our imagination, beyond our comprehension, that he can speak and things exist. Not just small things, but the sun. Oh, and the Bible says he made the stars also. Almost like it was an afterthought. His power is immense. He's creative. God is creative and God is wise. I, I never cease to be amazed at all the different colors that we see in life. Birds have very many different colors. So, some of their colors even seem to change as they move their necks or they move their wings. Flowers, so many different colored flowers. Now, why is there color? Some of you are colorblind. You're saying, you're making me sick. I don't want to even hear about it. Because you don't see color the way an average person sees color. But for those of us who are not colorblind, boy, there's so much beauty out there. Why did God make so much beauty? Because he's, he's one reason, not the sole reason, but one reason is he is a creative God. He likes variety. Just look around the room and you'll see how much variety there is. Different people. Short, tall, dark hair, light hair, blue eyes, brown eyes, green eyes, hazel eyes. I don't, I don't know how different eyes colors are. It's amazing the variety that God puts in just the human beings, much less his creation, plants, animals, fish. So many different varieties and colors because God is a creative God. And when we have faith in a God who's creative and who's wise, these little variations shouldn't bother us. Just because something's different than we were expecting or different than we were hoping for. God's creative. God's timeless. He's outside of time because God created time. God created time. In the beginning. Well, why was there a beginning at all? Because God said, let there be light. That's where time started. God's outside of time. He's timeless. He's not constrained by space. He's not constrained by distance. He's not constrained by material, a lack of material or needing material. It says here in Hebrews 11.3 that he created the things that are, were made out of things which do not appear. We're not made, excuse me, it says we're not made by things which do appear. Like I said, when we started this building, there's a pile of lumber. God didn't start with a pile of anything when he created the universe. Now, he did take man out of the dust to the ground. But who created the dust? God did. God doesn't have the constraints that we do. If I'm here, I can't be somewhere else. But God can be everywhere at once, can't he? I experience time sequentially, one day at a time, one moment at a time, one second at a time. God doesn't experience time that way. And that's why the Bible tells us that one day is to the Lord as a thousand years. And a thousand years to the Lord can be as one day. He's not constrained by time. God is a moral being. In Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made and he said that it was very good. Who determines what is good and bad? Who determines what is good and evil? Who determines what is righteous and what is unrighteous? God does. And again, he's given us his record here in his word. But God decides what's good and evil. If you don't believe that God exists and you don't believe 
that God rewards those that seek him and you don't believe that God created all things and you don't believe that God communicates, then what is your standard for right and wrong? Some of you may be surprised as you read the news to hear people who defend terrorists who kill civilians. But if you don't believe that there's a God and you don't believe that he rewards and that he communicates and that he creates, well, then maybe killing people is a good thing to you. I don't know. The only reason we have right and wrong is because we have a God who is moral and he says this is good and this is bad. This is right and this is wrong. I want each one of us to have an anchor. I want that anchor to be firmly planted, not in my own thinking, not in the government, not in technology, not, not in, in, in me, not in the church. I want that anchor to be grounded firm in God himself, in who God is, that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him, that he created all things by the word of his power, and that he communicates to us. If that's where your anchor is today, then let me encourage you, seek God, because he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If that's not where your anchor is today, if you're not sure that God exists, or maybe you believe God exists, but you're not sure he rewards those who seek him, or maybe you think he rewards those who seek him, but you're not sure he created everything, or not sure he communicated with man, then what I want to encourage you today, to do today, is to put your faith in God. Not yourself, not someone else. Put your faith in God. I am convinced because of history, of reading previous history, that we're, we are in for stormy seas, metaphorically speaking. Things in this world are not going to get better until they get worse. But the reason I'm not scared the reason I'm not panicked, the reason I'm not saying we all need to move to Montana and build a compound with a great big wall and stockpile a lot of guns and food is because my faith is in a God who rewards those who diligently seek him. Amen. A God who has created all things. <laughs> so he's beyond my comprehension and he's communicated to me. Amen. And no matter how stormy those seas get, my anchor is going to be grounded firmly in that God. And I hope your anchor is too. Father, thank you this morning for this reminder that faith is, without faith, it's impossible to please you. So faith is essential to pleasing you. Thank you for this reminder. And I'm asking this morning, there may be some that have come and they came without faith in you. They, may, they have faith in themselves, in their education, in, the, in government. They have faith in technology. They have faith in the American dream. I don't know where their faith was when they came in today. But I'm asking that your Holy Spirit we can convince them, convict them, convince them that the only safe place for their faith is in a God who exists, who rewards those who seek him, who created all things by the word of his power, and who is actively communicating. For those that are Christians, strengthen our faith. Strengthen those lines that hold us to the anchor that's placed in you. Give us a greater desire to seek you, to spend time in your word and spend time in prayer, to express our faith to others. That We, we, we trust God. We don't know what, I don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. The world may get worse, 
But we are not afraid because you're with us and you're beyond our comprehension. You're beyond your creation. You're beyond time. You're beyond space. You're beyond distance. You're not constrained by anything. We thank you, Father, for being a God who cares so deeply about us that you know the number of hairs that we have on our heads. You know the daily struggles that we're going through. And if there's someone this morning who's discouraged, a Christian sister or a Christian brother who's discouraged by circumstances, depressed, they've allowed the dark to surround them, may the light of your goodness and the light of your faithfulness break through and give them fresh hope. We ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.